We spent so much time of our days in our drama loop, right? Chasing this next drama, this next drama, being outraged by social media or the next thing or whatever it is. And in that moment, none of that matters. And so how to live, it's, it's to me, it's a gift of how to live in this state of impermanence because everything is in constant change. That was Janet Stone, and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Dharma Talkers, hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. It's Thursday, let's do this. Hope your week has been fantastic since we last checked in. And if you're new here, welcome to the fold. Happy to have you in the Sangha. Real quick before we begin, I recently released a 60-minute Hatha Vinyasa class through my mobile app, Henry Yoga, and it's available totally free. If you've got Henry Yoga app already, you can find it dropped into the extras section of the freshly released version 1.5. If you don't have the app yet, or you're located outside the US, just head over to henrywins.com masterclass to access it from your computer or mobile device. I think you're gonna love this class. Just give it a shot, and if you do, please share it with all your yoga friends. Once again, you can find the masterclass through the iOS mobile app in the App Store as Henry Yoga, or online at henryyoga.com masterclass. Okay, have you noticed that our planet is in a crisis? It's kind of hard not to be aware, at least to some degree, what with the fires in the Amazon, followed almost immediately by the unseasonal fires in Australia. Not to mention the less catastrophic, yet still anomalous climate effects, rising sea levels, plastic washing up on beaches worldwide, so on and so forth. What is our role in all of this? Could it be that the havoc we are wreaking on planet Earth stems from an incessant nagging voice in our head that keeps telling us we need more, that we don't have enough, that we are not enough? If so, then reversing the damage on our environment begins with healing our relationship to ourselves. Shifting our thought patterns away from collection, accumulation, and need toward recognition, contentment, and celebration of what we already have and know ourselves to be. What does yoga have to do with all of that? If you're not sure, well, you'll have to stick around and hear from Janet Stone herself as we dig into this topic and more in this week's conversation. First, let's take a beat to thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you in part by Warrior Bridge NYC. Warrior Bridge is an interdisciplinary movement studio in downtown Manhattan, offering classes in yoga, acro yoga, handstands, and flexibility training. Their classes are skillfully designed, featuring anatomy-informed warm-ups and progressions, drawing from and blending different yoga and movement modalities. While the offerings are diverse, what's constant is an emphasis on practicing in a way that honors where you're coming from and where you're trying to go. 
Warrior Bridge offers a full schedule of weekly classes, weekend workshops with visiting instructors, and teacher training programs, the next wave of which will be held this summer in NYC. First up, anatomy and movement teacher training from July 15th to 25th, led by Sean Langhouse and Emily Lazinski. Sean was a past guest on Dharma Talk, of course. This training is designed for both practicing and aspiring teachers who want to better understand anatomy and how the body works, as well as Warrior Bridge's unique training methodology around yoga, handstand, flexibility training, prehab, and injury prevention. And the next training will be their Acro Warrior Teacher Training from July 27th to August 6th. This is New York City's only Acro Yoga Teacher Training and is all about immersing yourself in the Acro practice and acquiring the skills to safely and intelligently lead Acro Yoga classes and practice. Learn more and register at warriorbridge.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Future Kind, the essential vegan multivitamin. When I first went plant-based a year and a half ago, I did my research about any possible pitfalls of the diet. Would I end up protein deficient? (sighs) No, definitely not. But there are just a few essential vitamins that vegans tend to come up short in. Vitamin D, vitamin B12, and omega-3. Enter FutureKind to save the day by providing the only multivitamin that includes just what you need and nothing else. Perfect for the minimalist veggie eater. Taking two soft gel capsules a day has helped me fight against fatigue, improve my mood, and enhance my concentration. If you're vegan or even mostly plant-based, I highly recommend this easy addition to your daily routine. I've been a subscriber myself since they announced pre-launch, and I haven't looked back. Try FutureKind yourself at henrywins.com slash vitamin and use code henrywins for 10% off your first order. That's henrywins.com slash vitamin and use code henrywins at checkout. All right, allow me to introduce my guest. Janet Stone at Janet Stone Yoga is a global yoga warrior, servant to the breath, and student of this heart journey. Janet's studentship began at 17 under the meditation teachings of Prem Rawat. In 1996, she traveled to India, the birthplace of her grandfather, and became dedicated to the path of yoga. Janet blends the alchemy of her own practice with decades of study. She aspires not to teach, but to allow the practice to emanate from her, letting awareness blend with movement and breath. Based in San Francisco, she leads immersions, retreats, workshops, and more locally and internationally. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to learn more about Janet's offerings and what she has got going on, then go to dharmatalk.show and type Janet in the search bar. There, you'll find all the notes, highlights with timestamps, and links from this episode. And if you're looking for something to read, check out my running list of every book ever recommended on Dharma Talk, including the book recommended by Janet. And you can find that at henrywins.com books. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Janet Stone. Janet Stone, I am so uh, privileged and honored to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for coming on. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's an honor and a joy to join you. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
Let's dive straight in. I sure. open these I open these conversations with the same question for everyone, and I'm very curious about what your response will be. What does the word dharma mean to you? And what is your dharma as you understand it today? Mm, dharma, right? The many pillars, um, basically the higher path uh, or the duty and responsibility. I feel like dharma is so rich a word and sometimes just get categorized in um, duty or responsibility or in sort of more Western times. What's your path, man? <laughs> But, um, yeah, for me, dharma really is uh, based in the pillars of the teachings. You know, it, 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 it is what holds me in my moment-to-moment um, -moment life undulations, raga, dwesha, likes, dislikes. And, you know, what is underpinning, what is holding me? And to me, that is the teachers and the teachings. Um, so dharma to my best understanding, is that now how it relates to um, my sense of community and duty and responsibility with this incredibly precious life that I've been given. I mean, come on, this breath, this body, uh, this time, then it feels as if uh, how do I fill out this life mm, honoring to the best of my ability uh, my understanding of the teachings. So then to go to <laughs> what is my dharma? Um, and it feels as if to, I'm sure it's evolving and ever changing, but to really um, own humanness within the teachings and share with others the um, gift of embracing their humanity and um, the way in which holding up a kindness and compassion throughout woven throughout the teachings. So whether it be to uh, my two children, my daughters, whether it be to a home community here in the Bay area for the last uh, couple decades, whether it be to the global Sangha that, you know, I'm out um, offering my best understanding of the teachings too. So really to hold up the, the lens of compassion and allow us all to first just embrace our humanness before we start getting lofty. I notice a lot of people want to click straight up to um, some lofty idea of bliss, of transcendence. And mine is imminence to transcendence, meaning to say to really embody uh, this human form and to really unearth and look into our samskaras, our um, habitual loops and patterns and addictions and uh, behavioral um, patterns that sort of hold us often a puppet um, to our own preferences, ones we're not even aware of. So that's a long answer, but there's an like even it. longer answer. <laughs> I'll stick <Yeah>. with that. <laughs> that's good. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, one thing that, that kept coming up uh, that I couldn't help but notice was the idea of community. It seems to be very mm. important to you. And if, as you said, Dharma is something that is here to keep us stable and secure through the fluctuations, through our likes and dislikes, attractions, repulsions, then how is it that for you in your experience, the community helps to ground you through all of that? 
Well, community is right at just a coming together of um, all of these stories and woven into a tapestry in a sense that is stronger than any one individual. So, I mean, somehow through the gifts of, of my teacher's teachings, I was able to see that it's not about the, the guru per se, it's the tapestry that they hold and the whole community that they hold. It's not about the teacher, though various ones of us are drawn to different voices and so on and so forth. However, what it is, is about this web of Sangha, this community, this uh, tribe that is woven together through um, satsang, really coming together, wanting to um, remember a deeper wisdom, a pull forth from each other, a greater awareness, and not only just be bouncing, ping-ponging from our likes and dislikes, from uh, the, the traditional loop that grooves that we just loop in our entire lifetime. Right. So what is the role of the guru or the teacher in holding together a community like that, that really does support the individual members? Well, you know, just super dependent on who you ask. But for me, it's really just keep giving the ownership back to the community, keep giving uh -huh. the, um, the reins back to the community. You know, there might be some glue that comes, comes from, um, a voice per se, but it's really the, the, the belonging of all who arrive there to hold integrity, to hold the teachings to the best of their abilities with each other and in that framework. And the power and strength that comes from that, from just a moment of arriving in a place where you feel seen, you feel like you belong, or you feel at least you can be um, witnessed in a new way. Very nice. Something else that I that I noticed that you spoke about was humanity or humanness and and embracing that rather than trying to skip any steps and go to a transcendent blissful state. Mm. So, what does it mean to empower your students to? to take the reins, to take ownership? And is the empowerment to do so, is that related to this idea of embracing humanness? Yeah, you know, it's it's really posing the question again and again and making space for people to dig deep into their wounds, into their traumas, into their um, repetitive stories, right, that we cling to, their certainties, and really begin to soften the palm, the grips, the um, containment on all of our our absolutes, and to to open up in these little cracks of light, and just shine the little cracks of light, or 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 hold up a mirror so that the light reflects back into these crevices, and they can take ownership of of their behaviors, take ownership of um, the path that they're walking on. I think so many walk through this life feeling at the effect of um, mm -hmm. external circumstances and uh, family karmas and, you know, this, this line of whatever comes down uh, before us and uh, both positive and negative, right? And yeah, I think just giving that ownership back to, to them to 
really want to look in deeply. And to me, that's that's the entire basis of the eight-limbed path. I mean, that we could spend lifetime, lifetimes on the yamas and niyamas and really become um, inquisitive as to our actions and reactions and where they come from. So I guess just handing that back over and just reminding again and again uh, to look at these and not just be one either overriding and just jumping up into, you know, again, bliss state, which is beautiful. It can happen at any moment and be a part of even this digging deep into the, the soil of our behaviors. But um, yeah, to just, why not excavate, excavate this, you know, part of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get the sense that you are speaking from, personal experience as most effective teachers do. So I'd love to kind of spin the clock back here and talk a little bit about your background. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give give us a, a primer on how you were introduced to yoga and how it started to become an important uh, component of your life? Mm, yeah, ooh, that's that's a story right there. <laughs> Um, yeah, my, you know, my grandfather and three generations were born and raised in India. Um, when I knew him, uh, it was in California days, you know, he had returned. and But he was imbued with the culture of India, you know, being born and raised. And, and that was his whole surroundings and life and filled with the stories. And our Thanksgivings would be, you know, dal and chapatis and you know, so there was something there that a seed that was planted for sure. Um, I definitely went on a, a vast journey of um, racing mountain bikes and snowboards and jumping out of anything as high as I could possibly jump out airplanes and <laughs> off bridges and just, you know, adrenaline and life force and oh, go and take it multi-sporting in New Zealand and just was in it. And I was in the film industry for a dozen years. And prior to that, when I was I don't know, 17 is when I met my teacher, my first teacher, and still my teacher, Prem Rawat. And he really just shared a practice of meditation that um, spoke to me. And his teachings were incredibly potent and incredibly simple. And to this day, you know, I hear his voice with, within me. And so he sort of rode with me throughout this whole journey. And my practice was a practice of meditation, a practice of um, what they call knowledge. And I, yeah, just spent my time out in the outdoors and embracing the, the hard, the pound, the, the visceral, the powerful. And midway through my Um, film career, I took what they call a hiatus and I just blasted off around the world and just solo and ended up um, in my grandfather's neighborhood back in India. And yoga found me. It was not looking for it in the way, you know, outside of the meditation, but everyone I kept running across was like, Oh, come here. Oh, you got to go there. Oh, tr- this is a sun salutation. <laughs> this is Shivananda and found Shivananda and just kept traveling on. And everywhere I went, it would be, you know, 
practicing the meditation, but also the physical asana started to show up. And um, yeah, when I returned back to Los Angeles, it had become just a part of my meditation and found the dance hall, which Brian Kest taught at and um, Govindas taught at, this little donation-based space on the second floor. Uh, in Santa Monica, and Max Strom. And I walked in one day and heard Max Ohm. And all my time in India and all my time doing this and that, just suddenly all of it made sense in his three ohms. And it became, you know, a home for me in a sense, a different type of home where I just calmed in my body, where I didn't need to fling it around quite so hard. And I became really curious about um, what it had and what was unearthed in each posture. I stayed in the film industry for a while longer. I worked on Curb Your Enthusiasm because I'd worked at Castle Rock for a long time with Larry David when he was in the Seinfeld era. So I worked on Curb, but then eventually through love and um, children, I ended up in San Francisco with my kid's dad. And that is kind of where I really began in earnest offering yoga and remained, of course, in the studentship of it to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is quite the journey that you just uh, <laughs> laid out for us. And um, I'm sure full of lots of unpredictable twists and turns. But despite the uncertainty and despite, you know, the, the unpredictability of it all, there was a point at the beginning where you took action. So I'm very curious about what um, that impulse felt like. When you were working in Hollywood, you had your film and TV production career spinning, uh, plate spinning, I'm sure, in many different directions. And then something compelled you to to up and leave and go explore the world. Um, yeah. You had your meditation practice at the point. Was that a component? Is that something that, that gave you that direction? Well, I'd like to say yes, but I can't say yes. <laughs> I think it really was was propelled. You know, my father was such a potent figure in my life and he was so embodied. You know, we lived in Boulder, Colorado. He'd wake up and ride to the top of the Continental Divide just for the heck of it. Um, loved to be out and always using this gift that he had, this body. And he got brain cancer at um, 45 and died oh, wow. very rapidly. And I was his caretaker during that time. And I witnessed, you know, the incredible vitality of a human life um, and its trajectory toward death. And I think that imprinted on me uh, something uh, so potent and powerful. And quite honestly, in my young life, I had been witness and close in to a lot of people leaving their body, young, young people, old people, the whole spectrum. And I feel like death has really been one of my most profound teachers. And 
So yes, I was midway in LA and I was, you know, fully immersed and everything was going. I owned a lot of stuff. (laughs) I was um, in demand and, you know, a couple of uh, decisions that, that kind of came along my path that really sort of broke my heart and broke it open and compelled me to step out and go feel into what is this all about? What is this life? What is this journey? What am I up to? Because of course, if anyone knows anything about um, Hollywood, it can be incredibly um, surface light. (laughs) (laughs) So I think I needed to go dive in. I see. Yeah. Death as the teacher. This Mm. is, um, yeah. I think this is something that um, has a lot of truth to it, but something that, for better or for worse, many of us, especially, you know, in the West and the U.S., don't have the opportunity to learn from because it's so shied away from. What what do you make of, of that? And our, you know, our it's, it's kind of a broad question, but you're welcome to interpret any way that you like. Um, our, our society's desire to look away from death. And do you find that contemplating death, contemplating mortality is an important piece of a spiritual practice? I honestly think, I don't want to say it's the basis, but I do say it's the basis (laughs) for a spiritual practice. You know, I'm a student of Shiva and um, Shiva is the representation or how you like the God that um, is in full embrace of creation and destruction. And in the Shivite tradition, it is the exhale, the emptying that becomes before the inhale, the filling. And if you watch in, in children being born, same, they come out, they screen that massive, deep, full exhale from a former state, place, however you want to see it, into this inspiration right into this inspire into this breath in and in india my goodness if that was not coming from the film industry where everyone is just all about themselves to funeral pyres and to funeral guts um where the bodies are just there or the ones being offered to the crows they put them on the top of the building and crows just come and feed on them or you light them on fire and they float into the ganges and to sit and witness and bear witness to um that emptying in a sense that deep exhale and the embrace of the exhale you don't see a lot of wailing or you don't see a lot of looking away if people are still washing their clothes uh, um, people are getting up and making breakfast and and death is at their at their feet in a sense and not to say we all need to run off there and go have that experience but you know thank goodness for in the west even the the short, brief little experience of Shavasana, that you put this um, body that is filled with presentation, right? If we think the the arc of our day, we're constantly in this sense uh, of, you know, presenting this best self, you know, our smiles and all these things and decorating ourselves, bejeweling ourselves, tattooing, whatever we do, right? And there you go. You set yourself down on this floor that's nothing and exhale 
and stop the efforting and just be. And if we can even get a little tiny glimpse of what it is to be in the receiving state of endings and beginnings, to let ourselves just set down that effort and that facade to just be and knowing that it's going to be a moment when we all have to face um, others passing and our own passing. I think it's crucial. Beautifully put. Uh, but I think even understanding that and, uh, and, and working to embrace that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not going to be struggle, emotional um, discomfort with witnessing the death or being involved in the death of a loved one. Mm-hmm. What was it, what was it like? Um, like what, what did you take away from the experience of, of watching your father pass so suddenly and uh, how did that influence your actions moving forward? Yeah, I think the great impermanence, honestly, and I got to be there as the body began to shut down and, you know, wash it and tend it and um, watch his last breath and to really witness that. And again, I've had a lot of loss. A lot of people have, have passed in my life, but to be a front row seat to this cord and this connection to someone and see that moment when um, all that animates us empties. And there it is, this body that we thought you know, we needed to have it in this shape or do this thing or, or do that thing, or we abused it this way or that way. And we spent so much time of our days in our drama loop, right? Chasing this next drama, this next drama, being outraged by social media or the next thing or whatever it is. And in that moment, none of that matters. <laughs> none of that matters. And so how to live, it's, it's to me, it's, it's a gift of how to live in this state of impermanence because everything is in constant change. So I don't know if that answers your question. I don't know if there is an answer to the question. Yeah, there. I don't think there is an absolute answer to the question, but I think that's a powerful takeaway to have, particularly if you have the wherewithal and the discipline to actually keep integrating it. And, it, and isn't that the challenge, right? We can have these moments of epiphany where we realize what, what is important, what the priorities are, but then yeah, and that the, we can the tendency, suffer. the and human a, tendency, and, this is oh. part of the, go ahead. No, no. I just was going to say to go back uh, to what you had said about, yeah, even if we all are prepped for this and we think we know and all the death and know it's coming and okay. And swaha, I let go. We, we still <laughs> suffer and it's okay to still feel the pain and I yeah. think that's a part of the humanity part. And if you try to skip over that, uh-uh, it, it will come and get you. So I did not mean to say that, oh, yeah, I just, oh, yeah, if anybody dies, okay, uh, bye-bye. <laughs> but it's, yeah. I, you, yeah, you feel and you integrate and that becomes part of who you are. That becomes part of your life and practice and living. But I feel like I um, may have cut you off somewhere in there. Oh, no, I, I don't worry. Um I think we're, we're headed in the same direction, but essentially what I was getting at is like, yeah, even if you have this, this epiphany that 
the drama doesn't matter. Um, like we know what matters when we see life slip away. We recognize like the importance of presence and, and love and connection. And yet then we go back into our daily lives and it's very tempting to get pulled back into the, the hamster wheel of emotional turbulence. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't have an answer to that either, but um, I think accepting that that's a challenge that we have to continue working on is also a part of embracing our humanity, embracing our humanness. Absolutely. And honestly, just breath by breath, practice by practice, whatever that practice is for you, if it can expand, even for a moment, your view, meaning to say that we pull out the lens for a moment and see beyond just that momentary, happy, sad, rise, fall, like, dislike, and just even a moment when we see ourselves more clearly or the situation or, and we pull back that that's, that's to be celebrated. <laughs> and this is why I keep showing up again and again, just humbled each practice, each um, time that I step onto my own mat or I bring together a community to, to do the same thing is just, can we remember that there is a wider view Um, And I think, yeah, I I do think um, death is a great teacher in that realm is um, that it gives that wider view of, oh, right, right. This is all coming and going. This is all coming and going. Everything that I grip onto coming and going. Is is this topic something that you speak about when you teach yoga to your students in, in classes and immersions and retreats? Or is it more a uh, personal practice of reflection? Mm, I, I, you know, it's definitely not with, you know, beating anyone over the head with a pan of like, you're going to die. Everyone's yeah. going to die. But it definitely is imbued, infused in, in everything for sure. It is absolutely uh, an, a, a current that, that washes throughout it and is um, offered in the way that, that seems most, most real and authentic to me. Mm-hmm. So, so what is something that is uh, at the forefront of your teaching right now? What is, what is something that you are trying to impress upon your, your students? Oh, I think it's really comes down to the sense of enoughness. Um, I think in particular through Western culture that we are Uh, constantly taught that we need to be bigger, we need to be more, we need to have more, we need to get more, more love, more stuff, more postures, more pranayamas, more meditation, you know, whatever whatever the case may be. And it's really just a breath of can we for a moment shift our focal point from that list of all that we're not, that lack list, right? Just that thing that thing that scrolls constantly it's like the teleprompter of our mind of all that we're not all that we don't have all that we don't give all that we don't get yeah the the litany of false beliefs oh it's incessant right it's just this (laughs) scrolling uh list that that kind of never ends and i'm sure And and if you disprove one then it gets replaced very quickly very quickly, right? And so can we just even for a moment, a breath, uh, a concept, move toward that column of where, what is enough? Mm-hmm. 
where do I experience what, yeah. you know, in yeah. this body? Oh, oh, my heart is too. beating. Okay. You know, just down to the, yeah, exactly. And that's all it is. It's, it's another, it's another practice to shift from this to this. It's just that. And so this power of enoughness, and often I use mythology. I use Paranas, the, the ancient um, Indian mythologies, um, I use the practices of clarifying what you're devoted to in definitely during your practice time, but in your life, meaning where do you put your attention? And it could be toward compassion and um, healing. It could be toward raising a family, whatever that, that focal point is, just to redefine that again and again and again. And just weaving that that sense of enoughness throughout our day. Notice when we tick over to that lack list. Uh, I'm not giving enough. I'm not there enough. And, and how do we use that the practice to to move into the the lane of of feeling enough? Let's um, let's be practical and specific. Uh, mm-hmm. let, let's say that you know. Let's say I'm really, really struggling with being in a mental rut and focusing on scarcity and lack and everything, every, all the places where I feel that I'm coming up short. Um, sometimes it's, you know, it's easier said than done to shift the focus. So do you have any practical tips on things that we can actually, that we can do, maybe practices that we can uh, integrate into our routine to start to change those mental patterns and get into the the positive side, the gratitude side. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And people offer these in, in a myriad of ways and a myriad of traditions as well. But, but certainly as a practice, making either the mental list, making an actual list, having a, a <clears throat> having a, a mantra that you, offer into daily that becomes a part of that, like you said, ritual of your daily life of when you, uh, maybe it's a morning practice, you get up and you write down all the things that are, look, a new day, I still have a house or a place to sleep, you know, go down the list and it might be different every single day, it might be the same every single day. Um, maybe it's a mantra of I am enough, I am enough, I am enough, I am enough, this is enough, it is enough, what, whatever the mantra might be, and roll through that 108 times and just see where it is. And it might be more toward a deity that embodies enough, like Lakshmi, mm-hmm. uh, that, that is sort of that embodiment of enoughness. And incorporate it, become a practice. If you're at work and you just kind of hear yourself uh, running down that ticker tape of all the things that aren't type on your computer, make, make a doc and just start writing out all the things that are. So there's a many, many different ways. And then you see it in the yoga asana, you see it in the postures, you see the mental loop of people just tearing themselves down as their inhale arms up, exhale forward, fold forward, inhale. You know, you could just see it. Oh, my hamstrings aren't flexible. Oh, you know, this. And you just, you can feel it in their being. And so offering to them to move as much as possible, doesn't mean we'll make it into the enoughness column, but at least bring awareness how much time we spend in that lack column and is there is there a pathway that we can take so i don't know you know aside from you know diving into deep time together um, if i can offer much more than 
just it becoming part of a daily practice, a ritualized way of at least seeing that we're hanging out in the column that may or may not have any real basis to it because that's coming from all of our uh, karmas that sort of build into this place and also our social and um, structure of what we're up to here in the West. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great point you make about simply being aware of the fact that we're hanging out in that column. Because I, I don't think that necessarily we always make that connection and mm. nobody really wants to be there, you know? So if you have the, the awareness to recognize that your mind is, is spending a lot of time on the, the bad part of town, then <laughs> that's, that's going to give you the impetus and um, at least the desire to, to change that. And, and people are pretty, people have ingenuity, you know, and that, that's where you find what works for you. So thank you for that. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, so true. You know, I have to, I, 14 plus years, I've been driving my daughters across town in during prime traffic, carpooling. This is not my favorite thing to do. I mean, really not my favorite thing to do. And I find myself, you know, I get into the rut and I start moving into that, like all the things that, that are not happening for this and all the things that are just like, grr. But then in this practice, so just kind of in a real practical life way, I start going, my children are healthy. They get an education. We're choosing this education and starting to like, even in the tiniest way, that doesn't mean I still love driving across town, but at least the lens is just dialed or the knob is just dialed a tiny bit. Uh, away from uh, just that that one column and a little bit more toward, okay, yeah, I choose love for my children and care, and this feels like a loving action. Mm -hmm. Right, right. What is what is the energy behind the the actions that have put you in this in the situation that that has some things that you don't like about it? And then yeah. you see what is what is the positive right there? and what is the undercurrent? If the undercurrent, the source of the action is positive, then that tends to infuse upstream. Exactly. And that's, you know, th this is, this is, a, I don't want to say it's all we can ask, but really in just the simple texture of our daily living, if we can even grasp a fraction of this, uh, it's a huge boon. It's a big win. Janet, let's well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit because there's another topic uh, that I'd like to talk about, and I know is important to you. What do you think of when you uh, you consider the concept of sustainability in your yoga practice? As someone who's been practicing for a very long time and has um, gone through a lot of changes in their life, that that yoga has been there as a backbone for. What does sustainability mean? Well, <laughs> you wove it in. Perfectly, Henry, quite honestly, because it really does come down to let's just go back to the principle of enoughness. What are we buying? What are we all trying to consume? You know, how how come there's so much um, greed and gluttony and that sense of it's not enough, right? To the point of where our planet cannot survive 
it just cannot. It cannot survive with this amount of pressure on it to sustain humans. It can survive, but not to sustain human life, right? Right, right. And it is Earth will go on. Earth will go on, not us. But we're the only species that acts against, chooses again and again against our own well-being. It's mind-boggling. I mean, billions of years of evolution to allow us to be able to be here as it is, as we are, right? These functioning bodies, consciousness, mind, process, thought processes, so on and so forth. For me, it really does come down to this base simple that we, since we live in that, la- that lack column, we will never know what it feels like to be satiated and enough. And without that, we will keep just mouth open, chomping at every forest, getting our best cacao chocolate, you know, and they tear down forests for that and our palm oil and wrecking every orangutan and all of the environments that hold the biodiversity that actually makes it possible for us to be here. What is yoga asana? What does yoga have to do with that? Everything. We are based on the five elements of this planet. That is how we're here, period. You know, and Ayurveda knows it. And this is kind of what they've based their whole medicine on. And yet it's as imbalanced as it is. You know, what is our responsibility as practitioners of yoga? And for me, it's to call forth for me, my own awareness around my actions, my moment to moment choices, um, but also support those, what I'm up to is supporting those who are on the front line of climate crisis, those Mm. who have the data and who are um, litigating, who are trying to stem the tide, who are trying to make Coca-Cola and Nestle responsible for the unimaginable decimation of our oceans through all of the plastic that they produce, so on and so forth and so on and so forth. So to me, it's, it's, it's woven in this place of one, I have to keep feeling as if what my actions are enough because it starts to feel overwhelming. Yeah. But that's, I want to create um, a sustainable program, a wellness program for those who are on the front lines. So I go into the NRDC, Natural Resource Defense Council, um, offer yoga myself whenever I'm in town. And we have a whole um, tribe of people who go in and support these people, support the people at Sea Legacy who are out there trying to tell the good stories um, and get us inclined to actually take action. And this is this, this can be present in every yoga practice and every person who comes to this practice. They can take ownership, just like we said, finding their own way to feel gratitude, finding their own way um, towards sustainability. And when we find sustainability in our body, meaning to say that we treat our body kind of like we treat the earth. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. Overtaking doing, you know, taking more resources than we're being offered. You know, if we think of our, the way that we're eating the stuff that does not sustain us, does not lift us up, does not give us great health, so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're going full circle now uh, because I, I think, you know, back to embracing our humanness, 
because I think one of the dangers of being a little bit too, like a little bit too ahead of ourselves in, in the yoga path and being trying to focus straight on tapping into Samadhi is that there can be a disengagement with 3d reality in front of us. Mm. And my personal belief is we use yoga and we use higher levels of consciousness, maybe traveling through dimensions or, or whatever esoteric practices that you might have so that we can take those lessons and bring them into this life. Because this is where we spend most of our time and it feels it feels real to me. I know it's the Maya. I know it's the illusion, but we live in it. Mm. And we need to make our yoga practice applicable to what we care about and what better cause to care about than the preservation of this beautiful planet and environment that we all that we all share so a- apart from supporting the uh, people on the front lines doing the litigation and doing the um, the nonprofit work and all of that w- what sort of things do you do and what sort of things can you recommend for the listeners that they can take small steps in their day-to-day life to support sustainability? Yeah. I mean, if we're talking to, you know, those in the yoga community, there's probably already an awareness to a degree, you know, and if we look at, at the teachings, we're asked to um, consider all living beings as equal sentient beings, meaning the choices of the food we eat, meaning our, you know, animals and animal products. And everyone, again, is going to have to come to their own, journey and understanding you know there's 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 no yoga police pointing the finger it's just consider it right you know and and then the ripple effect that that has on our environment and then the community around and and once you make a decision it does ripple out that you don't use um, the plastic containers and even for your fresh raw cacao juice green super smoothie you know if it's got if it's if it comes in a thing even if it says recyclable as we all know that that's a little bit of an illusion as well yeah and i mean heaven on earth it's here Go into nature, get the biomes from nature, remember, breathe it in. And these constructed environments of yoga are beautiful, but yoga is out in it. Like touch the earth that holds you and then remember that all the stuff that we keep clicking the button to buy, Amazon, whatever the thing is, will never satiate, will never. Look around and see how much you actually have, what do you actually need? And it really ends up coming toward, for me, my practice has become more and more simple, believe it or not. Of course, it gets all mm-hmm. um, big and complex and more pranayamas and every mantra and every posture. And, and, and now it's just showing up and whatever comes, comes. But it, it, it translates for me the simplification of a life lived um, really means you, that you take less, you're trampling on less. And um, at the effect of others taking more, more than you're being offered, this, it's a stay, honestly. <laughs> it's a way of living and not taking more than being than's being offered. You know, stay often translated as non-stealing, but it's really not taking more than you're being offered. What do you actually need and 
we don't have to berate ourselves for, for when we fail or fall or the fact that I, you know, fly. But to me, I have clear intention that I am attempting to share this message in all places as best as I can. Beautiful, beautiful words. <laughs> for for those listening who might like to study with you or practice with you, is there a way that they can do that? Do you have events or even online offerings that they can jump into? Yeah, I do. And and thank you for asking. Really, honestly, I've cared for a home sangha in San Francisco for nearly 20 years. Just again, one drop in the bucket each time we show up, it's become a temple in the Castro of San Francisco. And so anytime, anywhere, come and feel that that tapestry for sure. And plus, I, I travel globally, um, and you'll find me in many places on this planet um, sharing my teacher's teachings. And I do online, really, because, you know, we do try to minimize the, uh, the amount that I run around. Um, there's a whole online from the eight limbs to uh, chanting 101 to um, assisting to um, just pure dharma talks uh, on my website it's it's you know we've done our best to capture it's not easy to capture online what happens live at all and i resisted it for over a decade but you know to share the best as we can at least connect in to um, some of the droplets of these teachings And that's at janetstoneyoga.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, I think now is a good time for us to start wrapping things up. I finish these episodes each time with something that I call the prana round. So I'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions and you answer in minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Right, Janet? <laughs> All right. I'll do my best. Okay. Here we go. In one word. Why do you practice yoga? Equanimity. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? Not very rapid. I'm working on it. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, seated meditation. And why? Yeah, and why? Because, because it's seated meditation, yeah. the ground <laughs> and witness of the mind. Cool. What is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from one of your teachers? Exhale, then Exhale. inhale. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our listeners. The Ramayana. Do you like the one that's, um, the, have you heard the audio version narrated by Ramdas? Oh, no, I haven't heard that. Yeah, you should check that one out. Okay, it's good. good. Yay. Uh, is yoga for everyone? Yes. Okay, last question for you, Janet. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? Mm, yeah, by showing up to your own practice, how you can get in touch with me. You know, I'm in all the standard places. I'm on Instagram, Janet Stone Yoga and uh, my website, Janet Stone Yoga, or just show up in person with your arms wide open. Great. Janet, thank you so much for your time, for sharing from the heart. I really appreciate you. And uh, maybe we can meet sometime in, in Northern California now that I'm pretty close. Bring it on up. It is not far. Come on up. 
Dharma Talkers. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me, at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. I'll speak to you next week, and until then, keep living your Dharma.